Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is the Heart of Healthcare podcast, and I'm your host, Hallie Tecco. May is Mental Health Awareness Month and Women's Health Month, and I have a special guest today whose work is at the intersection of the two. Dr. Pooja Lakshmin is a board-certified psychiatrist focusing on women's health, a New York Times contributor, a founder of Gemma, and the author of the new book, Real Self-Care, a Transformative Program for Redefining Wellness. Pooja, thank you for being here today. Thank you so much for having me, Hallie. It's a pleasure to be here. I want to start by having you walk us through your own journey and what brought you to where you are today. And I especially want to hear about blowing up your life at 28 when you dropped out of residency and joined a commune slash cult. Yes, yes. Let's just dive right into it and just get it all out into the open. Um, So I'm a psychiatrist. I specialize in women's mental health. And I am 39 now. Um, I live in Austin, Texas. But about a decade ago, like you said, I, I blew up my life and I went very deep into extreme wellness. And that's part of the reason why I wrote this book, Real Self Care, because I have been there. You know, the sub subtitle of the book is crystals, cleanses and bubble baths not included. Um, and, uh, so I'm writing it not only from the perspective as of a psychiatrist, but also as someone who went very deep down the rabbit hole. So, you know, this was in around 2012, I think. So, you know, more than a decade ago at this point, I was in my late twenties. Um, and up until that point I had followed all the rules. I had done all the things that I was supposed to as a good South Asian girl. You know, my, my father's a physician. My parents are immigrants from India, you know, I went to an Ivy League college. I went to Penn. Shout out to Penn folks that are listening. I went to medical school, became a doctor. Um, I went to Jeff for med school, uh, matched at my top choice residency. I got married. Um, and so it was like I checked all the boxes off the, off the list. Right. And, and so for the first time in my late 20s, I was like, OK, well, let me figure out how to be happy. I've done everything that I'm supposed to. Now, how do I be happy? And of course, like that didn't work because I had constructed my life based on everyone else's values, not my own. And and I didn't even really know what my own values were, to be honest. And then on top of that, I was training to become a psychiatrist. I was in my second year of my residency. And for folks who are familiar with psychiatry residency training, the PGY2 year is a particularly tough year in that you're working on inpatient units. You're, you're working with 
the folks who are the most vulnerable and and often the most under-resourced as well. And I was really, really disillusioned with medicine and and the medical system. You know, I, I was... I was questioning everything, you know, it was like things that, that are, we now know in 2023 that the medical establishment is deeply broken, but you know, more than a decade ago, this wasn't part of kind of common conversation. So even things like, you know, a patient comes in and they're unhoused and they need, what they need is housing, but all I could do is write prescriptions for medication or, you know, another patient who is losing her job because she's lost childcare for the fourth, fourth time in a month. And again, I can do psychotherapy with her. I can write her a prescription for Zoloft, but I can't change the fact that she's lost her job and I, and I can't do anything about employment laws in America. So I was feeling really angry and let down by, I, I went into medical school very naive. I, I thought that by becoming a doctor that I would have all the tools that I needed to help people. And it was, and when I found out that that, that wasn't actually true, that there was lots of things broken in the world, in our society, in our culture that doctors don't have the power to fix. I was, it threw me into a tailspin basically. And so I, I left, I, I blew up my marriage. I moved into a commune in San Francisco that was focused on female orgasm and meditation and spirituality. I dropped out of my residency and I spent two years with this group. And in a lot of ways, it was very transformative for me. I got to work at a neuroscience lab at Rutgers that focused on um, the neuroscience of orgasm and putting people in fMRI machines, looking at the brain during female orgasm, which was very cool. But by the end of that period of time, I came to understand that the wellness world, the quote unquote spiritual world has just as many hypocrisies and contradictions as mainstream medicine and that you can't you can't run away from your problems and that that real self-care actually has to happen in your own life. And so th- that's one of the reasons why I wrote I wrote the book and um it's a big part of why I'm here right now with doing the work that I am with Gemma and on social media and um with my writing. So it's almost like you had, you checked off all the boxes, but then realized that you were checking them off of the wrong list. It was someone else's list. It was like, you know, I did all the things that I'm supposed to do, but this is actually not Pooja's list of fulfillment and happiness. It was like the society's list of things that they want you to do. Yeah. And I think it was even one step further than that in that, because I spent six or seven years in psychoanalysis after this period of time. And psychoanalysis is that very intense type of therapy where you're laying on the couch and the analyst is behind you. And, you know, you're really sort of exploring the depths of Mm. all the things. I I don't know that it was the wrong list. It was, it was for the wrong reasons. Mm. And I say it, it was, it was the list of what gives you a secure life, a privileged life, right? Being Being able to become a doctor in America comes with huge amounts of privilege, right? So I don't want to blame my immigrant parents because I think they were doing it. They were pushing me in that direction because they believed that it would lead to a better life for me than the one that they had and that it would lead to more options and choices for me. And because I had that privilege, I, I then had the luxury of being able to essentially have an existential crisis and blow up my life and kind of start over. And most people don't have that luxury. So there is nuance there. But what I've come to understand is that it's not that the 
it's less about the rules and more about understanding your reasons behind mm. them. Yeah. And and what what was it that you were looking for at the time? And did you find it during those two years? I was looking for quite a few things. I was looking for understanding and meaning. I, I wanted to understand myself better. I wanted to understand why I was so deeply unhappy in the life that I had built for myself. I think I also was quite angry and frustrated with psychiatry and with medicine. And so I wanted to learn for myself whether there was another solution, another answer. And in, in the beginning, I felt that there was, right? That, that there was something outside of mainstream medicine that could help with the anguish that I was feeling. I think I was also looking for community and safety. I was I was looking to be sort of outside of the hierarchical structure that medicine is built around. And the context there is that I'm somebody who I went straight from undergrad to medical school to residency. I didn't take any time off. And and partly that was, you know, well, there's a lot of reasons for that, but I, partly it was that I, I, it was sort of like this internal drive and desire to feel like I was sort of constant. I was, I was achieving those outward manifestations of success. So being with this group yeah. felt like it was a, a place where I didn't have to keep striving. Mm -hmm. And I hadn't had that before really yeah. in that, in that way. And you said that you were disillusioned by the medical system. I'm curious if you ultimately overcame that or if you're still disillusioned. <laughs> I'm absolutely still disillusioned. <laughs> I'm still disillusioned. And so, but when I came back to medicine, I came back a different person. I came back holding on to myself and understanding that medicine is flawed just like human beings are flawed, right? Just like the wellness and spiritual world is flawed too, that that whenever you're interacting with a system that lives inside of capitalism, that is influenced by things like racism and white supremacy and patriarchy and sexism, there will always be pieces that don't fit you and that are harmful. And so my job coming back to medicine, coming back to residency and deciding to give it another go was to hold on to myself. And that's the work of real self-care. So for me, and we can dive more into it, I made many different decisions when I came back to medicine that were aligned with my mental health. So part of that was starting a private practice. Um, so I'm on the clinical faculty at George Washington University, but I, I make my income from my small private practice. It also involved making the decision to do psychotherapy with my patients. I found that when I was only doing 30 minute medication management visits, that burned me out. Um, I actually, I really enjoy doing therapy. I love being a therapist. Part of what is fulfilling for me as a psychiatrist is, is getting to work closely with my patients. I also came to understand that seeing patients five days a week uh, was not good for my mental health. And so now I see patients two days a week. Um, and the rest of my time I run Gemma and I write and do other creative things. I want to caveat this by saying that the big piece of my work is being transparent about social determinants of health. And so one of the reasons that I'm able to have this flexibility is because I have a partner who has a stable employed job. I have my health insurance through him. 
right? There's risks involved in making these decisions, but that's how I have made a career in medicine work for me. I've, I've really prioritized my mental health and I've understood that one of my core values is autonomy. Um, I like to be able to work for myself and, and I am happier when I am, I'm my own boss versus Mm. working inside a system. Yeah. Same for me. So, you know, we do a lot of dissecting the different problems within the healthcare system on this podcast. So a question that I like to ask is that if you could wave a magic wand and fix anything in our system and really to support like women's mental health, since that's your area of focus, what would that magic wand do? Hmm. Gosh, I, it's hard for me to answer these questions, this question in the sense that I'm not a public health expert. I'm not a policy expert. So I don't know all sort of the technicalities of like the right solution, but maybe what I'll say is, cause there's so, so much wrong, <laughs> right? Like there's just so, so much, much is broken. Yeah. So much is broken. <laughs> well, and in your day to day, yeah. In your day to day, I'm sure there are certain like health insurance and coverage for mental health. I mean, those are things that you're seeing on a daily basis, things that your patients are dealing with. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the problem is that, is that everything's broken from the top and from the bottom. And so Mm. from a patient perspective, you can't find a therapist who takes, or a psychiatrist that takes insurance if you Mm -hmm. live in a high cost of living area, right? Nobody takes insurance. You know, when you call your insurance company to find people who are in network, all those people know are not taking patients right yeah um if you are lucky enough and and i fall into this category my insurance reimburses me i get 70 percent back when i see my my psychiatrist or my therapist but you have to do all this legwork to submit those <laughs> super yeah. bills and fight with your insurance company to actually get that money back right there's so much bureaucracy and then you know at even another level with kind of like actually getting your medication and having prescriptions covered right and the yeah. um uh all of the issues there so there's so much that could be changed sure i think from a women's mental health standpoint though because i'm a perinatal psychiatrist and all of my patients are women most of my patients are pregnant and postpartum so dealing with perinatal mood and anxiety disorders one of the places I'd love to make, wave a magic wand is in actual research funding. Like mm. I would love to see randomized control trials that are actually looking at all of the psychiatric medications in pregnancy. So we have a lot of da- yeah. data on SSRIs, but like, let's see more work around stimulants. Let's mm-hmm. see more work around like the newer mood stabilizers. Let's see more work around benzodiazepines. Like we know a lot of those medications are actually quite low risk. And and in my field, we're doing, uh, there's a lot of work around kind of educating medical students and residents about the fact that it actually is more, can often be more harmful to take a pregnant woman off of her psych meds than to continue them, right? Mm-hmm. And kind of really getting that word out there. But I would love to see more well done research and science looking at the broad spectrum of psychiatric medications during pregnancy and breastfeeding so that we no longer have to say to our patients, like, we don't know. Yep. Right. Like we don't know. So, you know, so just don't, yeah, it can't be recommended. Yeah. Right. Right. And then they're not managing their own mental health and we don't even know. Maybe it's not even. Yeah. Right. And I will say just for folks who are listening, 
um, that the, the huge caveat there is that we actually do know, we do know about SSRIs. We do know about so many medications that they actually are quite safe, but I would love to see that for like all classes of medications mm-hmm. and not just have it be the most common ones that are yeah. used. Great one. All right. Well, anyone listening, reach out if you can help <laughs> with this. Um, <laughs> So I want to talk about being a psychiatrist and the toll that it takes on the specific group of providers. I read a study showing that psychiatrists have some of the highest rates of suicide of any profession. What's happening here? And is there anything we can do to fix this? Yes. It's interesting because for a period of time, people viewed psychiatry as sort of a cushy specialty in medicine, you know, we've always been sort of the black sheep of medicine, not real doctors, right? We're psychiatrists. But I think more and more people are understanding the load of, of what we deal with and that it can be really emotionally taxing. And certainly in the pandemic, at the height of the pandemic, I think what was different in psychiatry was the fact that many of us as clinicians were living through the same circumstances that our patients were living through, right? So you couldn't really, like it was almost like a little bit of a boundary was crossed because we were all at home. We were all dealing with the stresses of, you know, whether it was like childcare or, you know, all the different things that were going on. There was a way where the veil was sort of pierced a little bit. I think that is ultimately a good thing because it humanizes the profession, but it also makes it tough because when you're also in a, when you're overextended in terms of your emotional resources, it becomes more difficult to bear the weight of your patient's suffering as well. Right. Yeah. Well, I was speaking a little bit earlier of like, for me, my real self-care as a physician and as a psychiatrist was getting really honest with myself about how much patient care I could do, right? And this was pre-pandemic, but um, I think during the pandemic, it came into view for more folks who work in mental health, like understanding that I can't just push myself to the limit, right? Like there's a consequence to that. And I have to know what my boundaries are. I have to know what a reasonable patient load is. I need to pay attention to how I feel, right? And how I feel (laughs) is important to the decisions that I make about my career. And I'll say to that, there's a lot of guilt that goes with that um, in the mental health profession, because we know how long the waiting lists are. You know, we know how hard it is to find help. Yeah. Um, And if you go into this work, you do it because you do ultimately, you are driven by wanting to help people, right? So, there is this difficult decision-making that you have to come to peace with on your own, that your own mental health matters, that it's not that if you don't take care of yourself and you don't have boundaries for yourself, then, then you will burn out and then you will end up leaving. Right. And that's not helpful to patients either. You know, one of the questions that you asked was around what is the solution? Yeah. And I think, I don't know how to achieve this. I can't answer that, but I do know like from a solution standpoint, like what, what, psychiatrists and mental health providers need is is we need more agency, right? We need more, we need, like we were talking about earlier, if you were just seeing like, if you're seeing like 30 patients a day and doing like 15 minute med checks, like that's terrible. Like I, I, and I know a lot of community, community psychiatrists that that's their week. Right. And I, I can't, I can't work like that. That's just, it's not, 
my mental health is, is really impacted then. And so we need workplaces and, and structures that support the autonomy and the time of mental health treatment. And the thing is that mental health treatment is actually care work. It's care labor, right? It's time intensive. You need that 50 minute session. You need that whole session, right? And um, when we're in an RVU productivity based model, there's a huge values misalignment there. Mm -hmm. Because in those types of systems, the impetus is to squeeze more and more productivity out of the psychiatrist. Yeah. I'll say one more thing on this yeah. is that um, I think teams are really important. As a resident, I worked at core service agencies. And when I was working on a team that was truly uh, multidisciplinary and that was truly respectful of all of the different perspectives that people were bringing, whether it was the physician, the social worker, the case manager, the occupational therapist, that teamwork, that's what boy owes you, you know, you, it buffers the stress as well. Um, so if you're inside a system where there is a real team and that team, everybody's pulling equal weight, that, um, that's really powerful too. The problem is that in a lot of these work environments, the physician or the psychiatrist is sort of put in a corner and said like, okay, well, you're just a quote unquote prescriber. So you just see patients every 15 minutes and like write your prescriptions and mm -hmm. like here, oh, you get a 30 minute lunch break. But other than that, like just write your prescriptions, do your notes and that's it. And that's just such a, that's a crappy place to be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One question I have just following up on that is, you know, I imagine as a psychiatrist and or, or therapist of any form, having hours and hours of really heavy conversations that you have to be on for, you know, you probably end the day just with like a heavy load, just like a sense of like a dark cloud over you almost because it's it is it is taking everyone's traumas and processing and helping them process. Do you feel like mental health professionals are getting the mental health support they need. So like, do the psychiatrists have their own psychiatrists to support them in supporting others? Yeah. Um, good question. Very important question. Yeah. <laughs> yes, they should. And I do, I have a therapist, um, and I have a psychiatrist. So Yes, we should be. And and I think we need to normalize that in psychiatry as a pr profession. It's one of the reasons that I started my social media account as well is to kind of be to humanize the profession. So so yes, absolutely. That people who work in mental health absolutely should and, and often do have their own therapy support. And I think we should be talking about that more to the first point or your first question of like, is it really heavy? It's actually funny because I find doing therapy with my patients to be much more energizing, even if it is a really hard session, even when there is grief and heaviness, because in that 50 minute session, the whole goal is that I'm there with my patient. I'm, I'm helping them reframe how they think about it. Like we're coming to, we're not coming to a solution every session, but we're coming to a shared understanding and, and it feels like there's movement, right? Like, yes, it could be really sad and hard, but when there's movement, that 
energizes me. And, and I wouldn't have gone into psychiatry if that wasn't the case. I know that this it's, this is not not everybody's personality is like this, but that's energizing for me. I actually am less energized by um, just like writing a prescription for somebody who is generally fine and stable and there's like not really anything to like yeah. sort of like work through, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so so it's less about the stuff being heavy and hard and it's more about do I get to use my time with that person in a way that feels useful for them and then in turn I'm able to internalize that and and feel like I'm in alignment with my values and with what I enjoyed how I enjoy spending my time and again like that comes back to agency right and I think that's why it's so hard for many physicians, psychiatrists, mental health professionals, when you're employed by a big system and you don't have that flexibility or agency. We'll be right back after the break. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Over the years, we've been promised that self-care, bubble baths, spa days, face masks, jade eggs would solve all of our problems. But I think now we're all looking around and realizing that we're just as stressed and burnt out as ever before, but with less money because we spent it all on self-care. You coined the term faux self-care to describe these very temporary relief valves that have been ineffective at best and harmful at worst. When did you identify this disconnect and how did you kind of have this, or when did you have this like aha moment that this was something that needed to be corrected? Yeah. So, you know, I've been thinking about it probably for the past decade, like since my own personal experience um, with extreme wellness. But it was in around I think it was 2018. I wrote a piece for Doximity, which is a physician website. And went it went sort of viral. It was called We Don't Need Self-Care. We Need Boundaries. And it was all about how in medical culture we're sold sort of these resilience workshops and mindfulness and all these different things. 
when in fact what women physicians needed to do was to learn how to say no and set boundaries and to set limits with these systems that were just extracting productivity for us and and right like wellness wasn't going to solve that and that evolved to me writing for the new york times and then led to um writing this book proposal so it's been it's been here with me but i think it's taken different forms especially in the past like five or six years when I've seen more and more patients come in and say things like, you know, Dr. Lakshman, I'm stressed out, I'm burnt out, I'm not eating well, and I'm not sleeping well, but I feel like it's my fault because I do have a meditation app on my phone (laughs) that I know I'm supposed to be using. And I do have, you know, I know I should go to yoga, right? But I can't find the time. And, And that's when I came to understand like time is a social justice issue. Mm. And these solutions, whether it's the yoga class, whether it's the bubble bath, whether it's the meditation app, they're a band-aid. And it's not, I'm not trying to demonize the band-aid before anybody like asks me about their <laughs> yoga, right? It's not that that's bad, but it's a band-aid. You know, one yeah. of the metaphors that I like to use about the difference between faux self-care versus real self-care is that imagine you're drowning and somebody throws you a life raft right? You need that life raft. Mm -hmm. And that's the faux self-care, right? You need that. You need Mm -hmm. something to to hang on to when you're drowning. The real self-care is what is your plan to swim to shore? Mm. Like, how do you get back to shore? Right. And that's something that only you know what that is. And you have to figure out what that map is. That's the internal invisible work. And everyone's path back to shore is going to look different. Yeah. And I've heard you say that real self-care is a verb, not a noun. And that's exactly what you mean. It's the verb. It's swimming to shore. It's not the noun of the life raft. Right. And the the life raft comes from the outside, right? Mm. It's something that's prescribed from the outside, whether it's an activity, whether it's a task, right? And it gives you that little bit of relief. And sometimes it's an escape, right? And we need that. That's not bad. But you can't expect that escape to fix your whole life. Yeah. It's, would you say it's like, necessary but not sufficient yes I think that's right yeah 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 Yeah. so what is the self-care compass that you talk about so there's four principles to real self-care the first is setting boundaries and learning how to deal with guilt and that's number one because you first have to figure out how to reclaim your space and your time so that's where boundaries fit in Principle two is self-compassion, learning how to talk to yourself with kindness and with respect. The third principle is where we get to the real self-care compass. So principle three is about identifying your values. And then here's the really hard part, actually making choices that are aligned with your values. And I'll come back to describing it, but just quickly to round it out, the fourth principle is understanding that this is power. This is how we get power back from these oppressive systems, whether the system is the healthcare system, right? Or whether it's the medical system, whatever it is. When the solution, when real self-care is personal and not commercial, then we have a fighting chance of getting to collective action and collective change. So the real self-care compass is a tool that I created to help give you a visual map of your what, your why, and your how, or essentially sort of looking at your goals, looking at your values, and getting clear on why you're designing your life in the way that you're designing it. 
So the crux of this is in really knowing your values. And if we kind of think back to what the beginning of our conversation during my midlife uh, existential crisis where I kind of came to find out where I don't know what my values are. Like, I don't actually know what's important to me because I had taken someone else's. It's actually really hard work to figure out what you value. And especially for busy healthcare providers who are spending all their time taking care of everybody else. What I find in my practice when I ask people, like, what are your values? My patients usually get really mad at me. Like, they're just kind of like, Pooja, I don't have time to think about that. Like, how dare you? Like, do you see my to-do list? Yeah. Um, or you get like a canned sort of stock answer back. Like people are like, oh, well, like I value my family. And it's like, well, yeah, that's great. Like we all value our family. Like that's that's not helpful. Like how do you value your family? Why do you value your family? Like a value needs to be a verb or an adverb. It's not a noun. Mm. Um, and so in real self-care, the way that I come to it is indirectly, right? Because when you, when you ask that question directly, you don't get the real answer. So you have to kind of come to it indirectly. So one of the exercises in the values section is it sounds really silly, but again, like it works better if you you kind of make it fun and silly. So imagine that you have $200 to throw yourself a dinner party. What would that dinner party look like? And when you hear that example or that thought exercise, the first thing you kind of immediately grasp is that every single person on the planet will have a completely different $200 dinner party. And there is no one right or best dinner party. It really is up to you. Like, what do you actually like? Are you somebody who loves music? And are you going to have everybody ask, like, send in, um, like, curate a Spotify playlist, right? Or are you really into travel? And are you going to have everyone bring a dish from a different continent? Right. Like there's just so many ways that this could play out. Mm -hmm. So giving yourself like a little bit of time to sort of play around with that thought exercise. And then once you have it in your mind, pulling out like, OK, what are the values words that come out from that example? For one person, it might be like silliness and humor. Like I want to look around that room and make sure everybody's laughing. And so if silliness or humor is something that you value, then what you do, like the work, the hard work, to be clear, is then like looking through your week or your day or your month and like, when am I embodying silliness and humor? How does that show up in my life? Can I bring that into my parenting more? Can I bring that into my work? If I work in an in a environment that is very serious and high stress, do I need to find ways to have more free time so that I can go to a comedy club or like, you know, whatever like you know it's yeah. like it, there's a different sort watch of solution SNL. for everybody <laughs> right watch <laughs> snl yeah or like maybe one of your values words that comes out or another person is sort of like connection right like really wanting to feel like you're getting to have one-on-one -on -one conversations with everybody who comes to this dinner party and so in that case how do you thread that through your work life for example if you're usually on Zoom calls in big groups, maybe you want to make it a priority to do one-on-ones with folks once a week to get to know people a little bit more on a personal level. So again, like with real self-care, it's not like, yes, we need those life rafts, right? We need the yeah. bubble baths. We need like those little timeouts. But the swim to shore, right, is really about your values and how you're constructing your life and and the really big choices around like, you know, what is my career? How, how do I, how do I, um, do I want to have kids? Am I a parent? If I am a parent, how do I parent? Who's my life partner? Do I want to have a life partner? Like all of these different mm -hmm. things, like real self-care is something that's threaded through all these big decisions mm -hmm. in your life. 
And do you think that's a good exercise for folks, uh, most of our listeners, who, especially those that work in healthcare, are facing burnout right now? Do you feel like doing this exercise and creating your own compass can help you feel more energized and better at just showing up every day? So I would actually say for those folks, I would recommend first working on boundaries. Mm. So in real self-care, I actually have a quiz. It's called the real self-care thermometer. And you can take the quiz to get a better understanding of where you fall on the spectrum. If you're a healthcare worker, you're probably going to be at red on the quiz, which is like close to burnout, right? So step one, the values is sort of advanced in that category. So the first thing actually is boundaries. And my conceptualization of boundaries is a little bit different. So in 2016, when I first started on the faculty at George Washington University, my mentor took me out for lunch and she gave me one piece of advice. She said, Pooja, you don't need to answer your phone. You can just let it go to voicemail and then you can decide what to do. And that was an aha moment for me because I realized like, oh, like your boundary is in the pause. Like the pause is the boundary. And sometimes it's the front desk, right? And I can say like, hey, like I'll come at the end of the day and sign the paperwork that you need. Sometimes it's a patient who like a patient who I know if she misses a day of her stimulants, she's going to be in trouble. So like, I'm going to put that refill in right away. Right. But it's the pause. It's that space where I decide and then I can say yes, I can say no, or I can negotiate. So I would say for healthcare providers that are listening that might be close to burnout or or definitely burnt out, the pause, the boundary is the place that you start. And then Mm. once you're starting to like help train your brain and get comfortable with that pause. Cause you will feel selfish for sure. It's going to be, you know, it's, it's yeah. a work in progress. Then after that, then you come to self-compassion and then you start to look at values. So mm-hmm. really like that was the other thing that was important to me in writing real self-care is that I I'm not overselling anything here. Like this is, this is a long process, right? Yeah. Like this is not something that you just like read this book and then you're like, Oh my gosh, my, the birds are chirping and like, everything's great. No, like this is the type of thing where it's going to take weeks, months, years, and that's okay because, you know, what, for, what I learned from my own personal experience is that when you're in that dark hole, when you're burnt out, the illusion is that there's going to be one magic right answer that's going to fix everything. And the truth is it's that there's going to be, no, it's not that easy. <laughs> yeah. There's actually thousands of right answers. There's thousands of small choices. Your job is not to know every single answer right now. Your job is to just follow that small path, right? And it starts with boundaries, right? And then you just keep following that thread. And it's it's still a process for me. Like I'm in a new loop now of writing a book for the first time and being on a book tour and talking about it and trying to balance Gemma and my patients and being a mom. Right. And so this is another loop for me of real self-care. It's not something that you just like know it and learn it and then you're done. It's, it's something that you're just constantly navigating. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how many times my reply to emails is like, I'm just over capacity right now. Reach back out in March. And I don't know what I think is going to be different in March. Right. (laughs) But just like putting it off makes me feel better, but it like, it actually never, it it never lightens up. So I feel like I need to kind of rethink about how, um, I set those boundaries with some of just the, the inbound I get from, from people. So you mentioned your startup. So in addition to practicing medicine and your new book, you have the startup, Gemma, can you tell us about what you guys are doing? 
Yeah, yeah. So Gemma is the women's mental health uh, masterclass focused on impact and equity. So I founded Gemma in 2020, and it was really born out of my Instagram account, to be transparent. You know, I was on Instagram, and, and there really weren't many psychiatrists and definitely not perinatal psychiatrists on Instagram at that time. And I wanted to be able to provide evidence-based education and have it not have to be on social media. And so I started doing Zoom classes about pregnancy, postpartum, and mental health. Um, And a couple months after that, I started talking to my co-founder, Dr. Callie Cyrus, who's a black queer shrink, about coming on board. And then we got connected with Dr. Lucy Hutner, who's a repro psychiatrist in New York. And uh, we have kind of a whole slew of different offerings. So we have Zoom classes that are focused on different aspects of women's mental health. We have courses for healthcare providers. We have one that's coming up on pregnancy and stress. And then we have these WhatsApp threads as part of our membership. Um, And I'm going to be doing real self-care for healthcare workers um, in 2024. So we're kind of in this space right now where we're navigating a whole bunch of different, different offerings all under the same umbrella of women's mental health across the lifespan and an education focus. So we do not provide clinical services. And this is by design because all three of us really feel like our strength is in the education that we do. And all three of us see patients in our own practices. Um, and there's there we're kind of looking at this as like a third space. You know, there's therapy, there's medication, there's places to get those things. But there's not a facilitated space for real in-depth conversation. Mm. And so that's what we're doing on the yeah. WhatsApp threads. We, we launched a sub stack recently that's called Therapy Takeaway. And we have about 7,000 subscribers. So, so yeah, it's kind of an exciting Amazing. time. Yeah. I will say one of the things that I've learned in the entrepreneurship process is that being a founder is like being a founder, writing a book and being a mom are all like just wildly <laughs> All consuming experiences, wildly intense and also like the same sort of like just like birth space, right, Mm. where you just don't Mm -hmm. have a lot of control, right? And you're kind of um, exploring lots of possibilities and sort of like moving with a lot of different things. And but part of my real self-care is understanding that I'm I'm drawn to those types of roles. So so then it's like what we were talking about before. Okay, if you know that this is something that's values aligned for you, how do you do it? And also build in buffers for yourself, right? If you're in it for the long haul, then you have to kind of craft it so it's sustainable. So I'll say one real self-care decision for me as well. June and July, I'm going to be taking Fridays off. Oh, nice. Um, Yeah. And that's that's actually, yeah, four day weeks. That's helped me a lot of knowing that's coming and knowing I've made that commitment for myself. And, And also knowing that that's just... Right. It's a little season, June and July. That's what I'm doing. And and so it's like it's also like time limited. I, yeah. I have too much anxiety to always take Fridays off. Right. But but, but I can maybe do it for you'll two extend months. a few weeks. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, I do want to say that I don't think I would advise anyone to do two of those three things. I do want to plug that I am a Gemma customer. It is so reasonable. Five dollars a month. And it's like a, a the WhatsApp group is like a, a support group. I'm really impressed by the, the rawness and the honesty that people are sharing, it really feels like, um, a safe space where you can kind of dig into these things and there are different, different groups that you can join. 
Well, thank you, Haley. I, I actually didn't even know that you were a member. So thank yeah. you. <laughs> yes, I, ha- I mean, I had to. I had to do, do some diligence for this podcast. But yeah, I'm really um, glad that I joined. And I, I recommend everyone kind of check out the website. It's, it's so easy to sign up. And it's really exciting what you're working on. Um, so my last question for you is you working on this startup, launching this book and the book tour, um, as well as your private practice, you're hopefully taking care of yourself and, um, you know, practicing what you preach, what is kind of next for you? Is it just kind of settling into this life of doing these disparate things? Is it, um, are there new things that you have kind of on your radar? What can you tell us about what's next? Yeah. So I think definitely part of the process for me has been transparent, being transparent about how the book launch did impact my mental health. You know, Mm. that I was really stressed for a period of like three or four weeks immediately following just because of the volume of what was incoming and the sheer volume of like having to make quick decisions about what to say yes to, what to say no to. In a lot of ways, it reminded me of like sort of founder role too, where it's like there's these periods where things are really intense and you just have to kind of rise to the occasion. But what's the blowback of that, right? Um, So part of my real self-care has been being transparent on social media about how this isn't all just like rosy, (laughs) you know, centering my mental health and like Mm -hmm. how I'm talking about the book. I think for me, really, what I'm thinking about is is that period of rest, that June and July, where I think things Mm -hmm. are going to be calmed down. I've also come to terms with the fact that now because of of the book and because of the direction that my career has taken, that I am in some sense, like there's a seasonal nature to my career in that spring is always going to be busy and holidays time is going to be busy, but that summertime could be a little bit more off, I think. And so I'm going to try or not, I'm going to try, I am going (laughs) to be slower over the summer and like really use it as a period of rest. And then coming back in the fall, we have a whole bunch of Gemma programs launching. And and I think 2024 is really going to be the year of real self-care and Gemma. And I don't have kind of like specifics yet to share, but I think what I've been seeing is that healthcare workers have really been resonating with the book and with the real self-care message. And, And I think maybe because also of my personal story, I feel a special connection to women physicians in particular and the plight of women physicians. So I really want to find ways to engage with women who want to go deeper into the real self-care work and, and figure out how to build that into Gemma. So so to be continued, but yeah. um, exciting things and and also hopefully rest too. Yes. I love Even though it. as some- I say, as I say in the book, I'm somebody who's allergic to rest, but I, I force myself, right? Cause I know we have to. Friday afternoon nap sounds so delightful. Yes. yes. <laughs> well, Dr. Lakshmi, thank you so much for joining us today. It was such a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in. Visit theheartofhealthcarepodcast.com for episode recap and link to Dr. Lakshmi's book and all of her social media handles so you can follow her. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Heart of Healthcare. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. The Heart of Healthcare is a product of Offscript Health. We are a healthcare engagement company built for patients and caregivers by patients and caregivers. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our host is Hallie Tecco. 
For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscriptnot.com. That's media at offscript.com. For more information, visit offscript.com.